This podcast is scheduled to be released on Lagba Omer, but it was originally recorded two years ago, 5781, Parshas Bahar and Bechukosai, and this was in the aftermath of the terrible tragedy that happened on Lagba Omer in northern Israel, in the city of Meron, on the mountain of Meron, by the pilgrimage to the gravesite, to the burial site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. You recall there was a terrible crowd crush and there was a stampede and 45 people perished. So just to give some context, the podcast you're about to listen to was recorded two years ago and the subject orients around that terrible tragedy. May the Almighty watch over all of us and may we experience only happy times and may we hear only happy tidings. If you want to send me an email, I always appreciate it. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We are up to the final installment of the book of Leviticus. This week is Parshas Behar and Bechukosai. Next week, with the help of the Almighty, we begin the book of Numbers. We begin Sefer Bamidbar. Now, I really struggled with this week's Parsha podcast. I'm sitting here in the Torah Center and usually try to record it much earlier in the week. And I'm only recording now. And the reason for that is because I wanted to speak about the awful, horrific tragedy that happened in Miron last week. And I wanted to connect it to the Parsha, to the double Parsha behind Bechukosai. But I didn't really know what to say. And I struggled mightily to figure out how to approach this subject. I want to start with what actually happened last week and then move on to the question of how do we process it and maybe take a lesson from our Parsha, our double Parsha, that is, to figure out how to navigate this very difficult question. So this past week, our people experienced an awful tragedy in Mount Meron. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. I just want to quickly go over the events that happened. Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer in Meron, which fell out, of course, Thursday night going into Friday of last week, that marks the world's largest annual Jewish pilgrimage. In previous years, there have been up to half a million people on one day on a tiny mountain in the Galilee in northern Israel. This is, of course, the place where tradition tells us the great sage from the Mishnahic era, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, according to Jewish tradition, the author of the Zohar, that's where he is buried. And that is the day when he passed. And that is a day of minor festivities and celebrations because it's a significant juncture in the Omer. That's when the students from Hebrews ceased to pass. That's when the, so to speak, touch point of heaven and earth where the great sage Rabbi Shimon passed and he taught over the wisdom, the Torah of the hidden Torah of the Kabbalah. We've spoken about in the past what is the significance of Lagba Omer. And this day has become essentially a pilgrimage where people go to his gravesite and they go, of course, to pray and to sing and to celebrate and they make huge bonfires. And that's a day to connect to Rabbi Shimon and to the Torah, the hidden Torah, the Kabbalistic Torah that he taught our people. Now, I personally have been to Meron several times, but I've never been there on Lagba Omer. In fact, in yeshiva, they used to 
encourage us to stay in yeshiva. It's more important to study Torah than to leave and make a, a whole day's trip to the north to go to Meiron. The truth is I wanted to go this year. I actually wanted to go last year, but of course, COVID hit and the country is still mostly closed. I really wanted to go this year. We'll see what happens in future years because I've never been there. And I kind of regret not going. But this small mountain is the site of this pilgrimage. And Jews have been going there in mass numbers way before, of course, the founding of the state. And therefore, this pilgrimage site, essentially the the site and the location and the right, so to speak, to the mountain, the various parts of the mountain, all that is already settled before the state in the Ottoman times, essentially. And as a result, it's a little bit of a chaotic pandemonium, if you will. Think about it, half a million people coming onto a very small mountain. And essentially, it's not being run by any one centralized group. There's all kinds of factions that have control of various parts of the mountain. And it's just total chaos, total mayhem. Now, thankfully, in the past, there hasn't been really any incident. And this year, there was a horrific incident where at one of the plazas where there was a very large lighting of a bonfire as is traditional, there was a mass exodus from this site. And apparently there's only one exit where thousands of people have to go through and there was a bottleneck. And there are disputed accounts as to whether or not there were extra barricades put up by the security and by the police and by the army due to COVID. And apparently this place where everyone had to leave, there were, there were steps that led to the exit and the floor was wet and people slipped and there was a horrific crowd crush and there was a terrible calamity in the stampede and 45 people died. I heard that there are 750 Different people who are sitting shiva with sat shiva this week for their immediate family members who perished. This is just such an awful, unimaginable, calamitous tragedy. I did hear some heroic stories about what had happened. So, for example, I saw this. Someone sent it to me on WhatsApp. The truth of it, the veracity of this, I cannot testify to, but... This is what I heard. Apparently, you know, there were so many people, thousands of people trying to get to the exit. And the people in the back had no idea that there was a bottleneck in the front. And there's just this mass of humanity. People are just touching each other in, in such close proximity. And a little bit of pressure from the end aggregates all the way to the front. And the people in the front who can't get through, they're just constricted and and asphyxiated, essentially. It's not that they die because people trample over them. They die because their lungs have no ability to to breathe and essentially die of asphyxiation. Just horrific. So I got this message on WhatsApp. Someone sent it to me that one of the people who was right there in the center of it he was on the floor next to a bunch of people that were already dead. And apparently this individual who eventually was saved, he didn't die, thankfully. He was already reciting the Shema. He thought he was dying. And a Jew before a Jew dies, you're supposed to say the Shema. 
And you're supposed to say the vidu. You're supposed to say the confession. Well, what's the confession? How do you know the confession? Well, if you look at any siddur, any Jewish prayer book, it will have the actual text of the confession you're supposed to say before you die. But most of us don't have access to that at all times. So here's the answer. When a Jew is about to die, if you know that you're about to die, God forbid, all of us go, but God forbid if it happens at a time you're not expected, you're supposed to say, Let my death be an atonement for all my sins. Let my death be an atonement for all my sins. So this person is here amidst this crowd crush, and he's assuming that this is it for him, and he's reciting the Shema, the declaration of our faith. And he's saying the vidu, he's saying the confession, let my death be an atonement for all my sins. And he hears the person next to him saying the following, I forgive completely all the people that are trampling over me, all the people that are pushing me, all the people that are contributing to the events that I know are going to bring about my death. Apparently this person repeated it again and again and again until he stopped talking and his soul returned to heaven. Just an amazing, heart-wrenching, spine-chilling story of what happened amidst the chaos and the mayhem and the disaster and the calamity in Mayrone. I spoke to my brother Yoni. He told me that his brother-in-law was actually right there at the time. And, you know, this is pandemonium. This is mayhem. There's thousands of people, but that's what you expect. That's what you sign up for if you go to Mehron on Lagbaomer. And he was right there, and apparently he had no idea anything was amiss. Because, you know, there's pushing, there's shoving, there's lots of people. Everyone's trying to get to the exit. And there's such a mass of humanity, and you don't know that there's people in the front of this that you can't see that are being crushed to death. And apparently, this is what he told me, there was someone who was on top of it, had like a like a bird's eye view of the tragedy that was unfolding beneath him and noticed that people were just being crushed to death. The crowd, the stampede was constricting them and they, they couldn't breathe. And this person apparently was opening water bottles and spraying water at the crowd below him to try to get the attention of the people at the back, at the edge, at the periphery, so to speak, who are contributing to this amassing pressure to try to get them to back off. So my brother told me that this actually could have been so much worth 45 people dying. It's just it's unthinkable. Unthinkable. Just old people, young people, horrific. But apparently it could have been even worse if not for the interventions of some of these heroes. That's what happened last week, Thursday night, early Friday morning in Meron in northern Israel. And in the aftermath of such an awful tragedy, I think it's incumbent upon us to ponder how do we process such a calamity. And this is the question that I was struggling with over the past week. And I think many of us were struggling with the same question. And I listened to a lot of people and what they had to say. I heard some things that resonated. I heard some things that really did not resonate. And I want to share with y'all, my dear friends at the Parsha Podcast, my thoughts on this matter. And I think there's a theme found 
in both parashas that we celebrate, that we read this week, both Bahar and Bechur Hosai, that I think give us insight into how indeed to process and navigate this horrific event. So Rashi in chapter 26 verse 1 encapsulates all of Parsha's Behar, the first Parsha that we read this week, into one continuous theme. And he tells us the Parsha begins with the mitzvah of Shemitah, the mitzvah that you have to take the seventh year off. If you're a farmer in the land of Israel, every seven years, you have to stop. Stop all your agricultural activities, no planting, no plowing, no harvesting, no reaping, no hoeing, no sowing, nothing. A year off. You take a year off. Your neighbor also takes a year off. The entire country, even if it's an agrarian society, everyone takes off. And we rely on God for a whole year. And that's the mitzvah of Shemitah, followed by the mitzvah of Yovel, which is the 50th year on a 50-year cycle. So every seven years is a Shemitah, and every Seven cycles of seven years, you have 49 years, and year 49 is a Shemitah year, and year 50 is a double Shemitah year. No work on the field, no tending essentially to your livelihood, you rely on God. And then it talks about what happens if someone sells their movable items to their friend and how they could buy it back, etc. And then it talks about when someone sells their home and their ancestral land, and then there's laws about borrowing or lending with interest. And finally, there are laws related to Jewish slaves, both a Jewish slave who's owned by a fellow Jew and a Jewish slave who is owned by a non-Jew. And Rashi tells us in chapter 26, verse 1, that this entire parsha, even though it seems to be disparate, unrelated laws, it's really one continuous theme. At the beginning of the parasha, we have the mitzvah of Shemitah. In this mitzvah, we're told that you have to be willing to rely on God and take an entire year off from work. Rely on Him. He'll take care of you. What if a person is desirous of money and does not obey the laws of Shemitah? The next part of the parasha kicks in. He must sell his assets. The Almighty will create a condition, create a situation where he will come to dire straits and have to sell his assets. And that's there to encourage him to repent. But if he doesn't repent, then the next part of the Parsha Kitchen, he'll sell his ancestral heritage, his portion in the land of Israel. And if he doesn't repent, he'll have to sell his own home. And if he doesn't repent, he'll have to borrow with interest, with the punitive interest. And if he still refuses to repent, he'll have to sell himself as a slave, first to a Jew, and then even to a non-Jew. It's an incredible insight that Rashi tells us here in 26.1, towards the end of Parshish Bahar. Why did a person, why does a person have to sell his movable property? Why does a person end up in a situation where they have to liquidate their assets? That is a wake-up call for him from God, rectify your ways. That's a divine nudge. And what happens? The person does not heed the call, and the nudge gets a bit harsher. You have to sell your house and your ancestral house, and you have to borrow with punitive interests. And then you have to sell yourself as a slave. And then even to non-Jews. Rashi is telling us is that each of these, essentially punishments, or bad things that befall a person, they're all delivered by God to this person as a means 
to coach the person back to faith. And if he doesn't accept the lesson the first time, the Almighty says, okay, I'll have to up the ante and give him a second lesson, and so on. The whole parsha is a continuous narrative of God nudging and nudging the man, sending him a message, repent, rectify your ways, come back on track. That's Parsha's Bihar. What about Parsha's Bichukrosai? Well, the whole parsha is designed, or at least the beginning of the parsha is designed, as an if-then proposal. If you obey the mitzvot, if you walk in the ways of God, he'll take great care of you. And you'll have prosperity and stability and things will be great. Security, everything will flourish. But if not, if you disobey the mitzvot, if you refuse to walk in God's ways, begins to list terrible, awful things that will befall you. And it details successive series of curses that, of course, sadly have befell our people in our history. And the question we must pose is, what is the point of these curses and awful consequences? And again, the answer is that it's not some sort of punishment, but a divine nudge to get us back on track. We have deviated from the path, and the Almighty wants us back on track. And he throws curveballs our way to encourage us to take the message to heed the lesson. And if we fail to heed the lesson, he ups the ante. He raises the stakes. And that soft nudge becomes maybe a sharp elbow in the ribs. The lesson from God gets fiercer and intensifies further. There's a repeating refrain in our parsha, 26, 21, 26, 23, 26, 27, if you go with God with the concept of carry, which means casualness, which means randomness, which means apathy, complacency. If you continuously refuse to heed the message, God's going to make it harsher, make it worse. And again, the parsha delineates all the terrible things that are going to happen to us. And there's a very important Rambam, the beginning of Laws of Fast Days, where he tells us that it is a mitzvah from the Torah when something bad happens to us, when a tragedy befalls us. It's a mitzvah for us to cry out to God and to sound the trumpets to try to figure out why did this happen to us. Meaning that our philosophy, when bad things befall us as individuals or befall us as a nation, the proper Jewish response is to figure out what is the divine lesson? What nudge is God trying to give us? Why is he doing this to us? Continues the Rambam. This is the ways of repentance. When something bad happens to us, we believe that the reason why God did that to us or God allowed that to happen to us, it's a wake-up call. It's a nudge from him because we're doing something wrong and he wants us to rectify our ways. Continues the Ramam. But if we don't cry out to God and we don't sound the trumpets and we don't try to have a wake-up call to figure out what it is that we can improve upon, rather we say, after all, this is the way things happen. Bad stuff happened in the world. It's happenstance. It's carry. That, tells us the Rambam, is the ways of cruelty. And that's going to cause us to maintain our bad ways. And that will beget further troubles. And he quotes the verse 26, 27, and 28. If we walk with God with carry, 
meaning casualness, we refuse to heed the message, he is going to bring us further and further trouble and pain and suffering to try to get our attention. So I think in the aftermath of this terrible event that befell our people, you know, if you look at the people who go to Meron, it's not one kind of Jew. It really contains a very nice cross-section of our people. There is a potpourri, a motley mix of Jews. There are people, of course, that are locals, people from all over the country, people from all over the world come to Meron to celebrate. It's a Jewish festival. In one of the speeches I heard this week, someone compared it to the temple, saying that if you want to get maybe a flavor of what it was like to go to the temple on the high holidays, on Yom Kippur, on Pesach, where all of the various stripes of our people coalesce and unite, the closest thing that we have to that is Meron. People from such divergent backgrounds and people who essentially throughout the year really have nothing to do with each other. There's something about this place that unites various factions and groups of our people. And over here, there was a blow that befell our nation. And the Ram's telling us, and this Parsha, both Bahar and Bechut Kosai, this week tells us how are we supposed to respond to tragedy? We're supposed to figure out what is the divine nudge. What message is he sending us? Someone has a bad financial straits. He has to sell his property. According to the Torah, that's a lesson from God. And if you don't take the lesson, well, things are going to get worse. The various terrible things that are outlined in the Parshish Kosai, all of them are their messages from God to try to get our attention, to have us rectify our ways. I think we can say, just with confidence, that the first thing we have to do in trying to process the events that happened in Meron, is to ask the question, what does the Almighty want of us? There was something that happened here that befell our people. It wasn't a bunch of individuals. The Jewish nation was struck in Meron last week. And therefore, we collectively as a nation have to ask the question, what does the Almighty want of us? And I think that once you have that question, there is an instinct to try to find an answer, to try to seek a solution. And I think that, you know, you can make a very good argument. Hey, the place is not prepared for it. Next time you got to make sure there's fewer people. Maybe you have to sell tickets. Maybe you have to have uh, more security or you have to set up the mountain in a way that it could handle such a large crowd, get the professionals involved. If a million people can come to Times Square for New Year's Eve, why can't a million people come to Meron? But you have to have the professionals involved. That's what I heard this week as well. And some people say, well, no, that's not a Jewish response. After all, we should focus on the, the spiritual factors of it. But I uh, I think that it actually is a very legitimate response. After all, there's a mitzvah of the Torah that says you have to build a fence around your roof because otherwise people will fall and die. The Torah expects us to create the infrastructure of safety to prevent tragedies, calamities from happening. There's a mitzvah from the Torah, a spiritual commandment from God, 
to build a fence when there is a need for a fence, a literal fence on your roof. Otherwise, people are going to fall and die. I think it's a mitzvah, by extension, to figure out what the infrastructure that would be conducive to have a, a safe experience in my own. That's a mitzvah. And I think that's very legitimate. But most of us, certainly me here sitting here in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, this is not something that really I could do. I think for me, I have to ask the question, what am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to do about it? What is the lesson? How can we process this? So I think number one, like the Rama says, we have to acknowledge that this is a message from God. If someone says, oh, stuff like this happens, and therefore, why are you worrying about it? You know, tragedies happen every day. The Ram told us that that is cruel. It's cruel to say that people died needlessly. The correct response is that no, it's a message from God. God wants something of us. But what exactly he wants is a bit hard to know. He doesn't exactly spell out for us why he does what he does or why he allows such things to happen. And therefore, we could be essentially fumbling in the dark to try to find an answer to the calamities that have befallen us. So I want to point to an example in the Torah of how this played out. If you go back to Genesis chapter 42... A call back to Genesis. We're finishing Leviticus now. And then let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 42. Joseph has been enshrined as viceroy of Egypt. There is a global famine. And Joseph's brothers come to try to procure grain, food, provisions for them in the land of Canaan. And they don't know that they are standing in front of their own brother, who is now the Egyptian viceroy. And Joseph plays hardball with them. He accuses them of being spies. He incarcerates them for three days. He takes Shimon as a hostage. And then he demands that they bring Benjamin down. Verse 21. And the brothers said to each other, We are guilty. We are guilty because of our brother, because of Joseph. When we saw his anguish, he was pleading before us and we refused to listen to him. And therefore, this calamity, this tragedy, this challenge, this difficulty has come our way. Essentially, the brothers are doing what we're trying to do here. Something bad happened to them. They went to Egypt. They weren't spies. They were accused of being spies. They were put in jail for three days. Their brother Shimon was taken away from them. This monstrous viceroy of Egypt is demanding they bring Benjamin down. And they know that Jacob does not want to send Benjamin. Their whole family is kind of falling apart. And they are asking the question, why did it happen to us? And they have an answer. We know the reason why. Joseph, our brother, was pleading before us. And we refused to heed his call. We refused to be moved by his cry. And that is why this is happening to us right now. When something bad befell the brothers, they immediately asked the same question we're trying to answer here. And they came up with an answer. I think it's hard for us to say definitively that we could pin the events that happened last week on any specific 
thing that the Almighty wants of us. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what the lesson is. I did hear something which which sounded quite reasonable. We know that this time of the calendar between Pesach and Shavuot is a time where the 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva perished. And the Talmud tells us that the reason why they died was due to insufficient honor of one to another. And maybe because that is the reason why bad things befell us at this juncture of the calendar, maybe we could say, quite reasonably, that the way for us to rectify it is by according to others with love and honor and respect. And perhaps we can even suggest that you know these people died, who killed them? It was essentially the people who were in the crowd. Now, of course, there was nothing malicious about it. The people in the back, so to speak, of this crowd crush had no idea that them pushing a little bit would aggregate all this pressure and 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 movement and crush people to death. Obviously, no one intended that to happen. But this was unintentional harm by people being close to each other. It's almost like COVID. You know, in COVID, was there anyone who passed a deadly virus to someone else and intentionally killed them? Most likely not. Maybe there were a few, but that's not how people died. But how many people passed the virus to others and unintentionally killed them? That's millions of people. The virus relies on its host. It does not exist independent of its host. And therefore, there were people that harbored the virus and they went in close proximity to other people and we could argue about uh, masks and social distancing, but that's how viruses pass. And people were in close proximity to others, and they passed a deadly virus to someone else that caused them to die. Now, of course, there was nothing malicious about it, and there was nothing intentional about it. But maybe this is like a like a metaphor, if you will, of COVID, that the lesson for us is that we have to be super careful and super fastidious to not cause any harm to other people, maybe that's the lesson of this horrific episode. Almost like our nation's version of this global lesson. And my answer is, I really don't know. I don't know why this happened to us, but here's what I do know. Processing this tragedy in this manner is more important than knowing the answer. Again, back to the Rambam. The Rambam tells us that we, when something bad happens to us, we have to ask the question. We cannot say, oh, it's random happenstance. We have to ask the question. We have to wrestle with it. We have to think about it. We have to ruminate upon it. And asking the question is much more important than finding the answer. If we could give an answer, it almost resolves our dissonance. The resolution of the question, takes the steam out of the lesson. We must think about the question. Not just as the means to get an answer, not just as a means to figure out what exactly it is, the message from God, not just to resolve the problem, but to try to use the power of the wake-up call, of the divine nudge, to improve ourselves and to rectify our ways. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q, answers and questions. And here is this week's question. 
The very last mitzvah of the book of Exodus is the mitzvah of tithing of animals. You have uh, an, like animals in a pen, and you release them through a door. You release them one at a time. And every tenth one that comes out, and you cannot try to manipulate it. You can't say, oh, let, let the small scrawny one be the tenth one. You can't manipulate it. The tenth one that comes out, regardless of what it looks like, you take a red paintbrush and you slap it with the paintbrush, and that becomes the one that is holy, that is the tithe. Chapter 27, verse 32, All the tithes of your herd, of your flock, you pass it under the shepherd's staff. Every tenth one shall be holy to the Lord, and you cannot differentiate between good, between bad. That's the way it works. The tenth one gets struck by this paintbrush, and it gets hit, and that becomes holy. And here's the question. Why do we hit the tenth ones? Why do we hit the ones that are holy? Why don't we hit the ones that are not holy? This whole thing could have been reversed. The first nine that come out of the pen are all hit. And the one that comes out the tenth, the one that's going to be holy, is not going to be hit with this red paintbrush. Doesn't it make more sense? Doesn't it make more sense to hit the ones, to strike the ones that are not holy? And to leave the holy ones untouched and unblemished? Why is the system designed where the nine, the first nine that you got to keep, you don't touch? And the one that's holy, the one that's for God, that's the one that gets hit. That's the one that gets branded. That's the one that you must strike with the red paintbrush. Why is it like that? If you have an answer, send me an email, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. Okay, let's get to last week's a and Q. And our question was, last week we had the mitzvah of sanctification of God's name. There's a prohibition against desecrating God's name. And there's a mitzvah to sanctify God's name. And the Talmud tells us that this refers to dying for the name of God, to be a martyr. And Rashi tells us that when you die for God, you should go with the intention of dying, not with the intention of being saved in a miraculous fashion. He tells us the only way a miracle can happen is if someone intends a miracle to not happen, if someone intends to die. If you intend to have a miracle happen to you, then a miracle will not happen to you. And the question is why? What is the mechanism of a miracle? So the Maharal has a very powerful idea that I want to share with you all. What is a miracle? A miracle is a departure of the rules of physics. Our world is governed by a strict, rigid set of rules. And when something miraculous happens, something that defies the rules of the world, we call that a miracle. But how does that happen? We live in a world that has very fixed, rigid rules. How does a miracle happen? The morale reveals something very fascinating. The only way a miracle can happen is if a person, the recipient of the miracle, is no longer subject to the rules of this world. It's not that the miracle is a violation of the rules of the world. A miracle is a person is treated in the realm in which that person exists. And if a person exists in this world, when well, in this world, there's, there's rules and the rules are fixed. 
but a person does not need to be limited to being in this world alone. Even though you are here, you could change, so to speak, your citizenship and become like a citizen of the next world, of the spiritual world. And in heaven, in the spiritual world, the rules of physics don't apply. The rigid rules that govern this world don't govern that world. And therefore, when a miracle happens, explains the Maharal, a miracle is a person being treated the way they deserve to be treated. So if they're a citizen in this world, well, miracles don't happen. If they're a citizen of the next world, well, then miracles do happen because the person is treated the way they deserve to be treated. And if they are a citizen, so to speak, of the next world, then they are treated as such. And to us, people who are trained in the world in which we live, it looks like a miracle because there's a departure from the rules of nature. And therefore, the moral explains Rashi, if a person intends for a miracle to happen, they're expecting something, which is impossible. You're going to throw someone into a fire, they're not going to die? It's not possible. Why? Because the rules of nature dictate if you throw a human into a furnace, they're going to burn and die. But Abraham is thrown in to the fire, and he survives. The executioner tries to hack at Moshe's head, tries to decapitate him, and Moshe survives. How does that happen? The answer is that Moshe and Abraham are people that have become citizens of the spiritual world. And therefore, if God wants them dead, they die. If God does not want them dead, no matter what the executioner thinks, no matter what the person who throws Abraham into the furnace thinks, they're going to be untouched. That's a miracle. Explains the Maharal. If a person acts in martyrdom, in fidelity to God, and says, I would rather die than violate the Almighty's will. I would rather die than desecrate God's name. That act of martyrdom and self-sacrifice is an act that catapults them out of this world and into the next world. They become a holy person. And they become someone who is no longer subject to the rules of this world. So it's precisely the deed of forfeiting their life that allows a miracle to happen. It's because they want to die for God that elevates them to become a holy person, i.e. someone who is no longer subject to this world's rules, becomes a citizen of the next world, and therefore God says, okay, I don't want this person to die. Because now he's existing, so to speak, in the spiritual realm, no longer subject to the rules of nature, and therefore a miracle can happen to them. So just a very interesting architecture, if you will, of a miracle. A miracle cannot happen when a person is subject to the rules and regulations, to the rigid strictures of this world. It's only when a person says, I'm going to dedicate myself to God, they become elevated, and that indeed creates the possibility for a miracle to happen. I thank you all for listening. Sorry, we are a little bit late on this week's Parsha podcast. As I mentioned, I had a really hard time with this week's idea. I hope it was insightful, meaningful. I hope you're doing well. Hope you are safe and sound and happy. And as always, you can email me, rabbitwoodjimit.com. Have an amazing rest of your week. Have a great, fantastic, wonderful, splendid Shabbos. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.